everyone. Welcome to episode 159 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. And we are not together today. Emily is in Connecticut and I'm here in Illinois. Had to make a surprise trip or unplanned trip, I guess you should say. My mom had an injury and surgery. So I am here to help her as she heals for a couple weeks. We literally got one quick hug over the fence, handing off the baton as I arrived back in Guilford and Chris left. So through the miracle of technology, we are together, but not together today. Yes. So we have a couple of Patreons to thank. Thank you to Anne and Tina. Oh gosh, thank you so much for your support. It means so much to us. It really helps. It really does. So buckle up your seatbelts, y'all. We haven't been together for a few weeks. We've been places. We have a lot of books to talk about and places that we've seen. Chris, what are you currently reading? Well, I am currently reading one of my big books that I had on my big book stack of potentials, and it is Liberty's Exiles, American Loyalists in the Revolutionary World. And this is by Maya Jasanoff. This book is so fascinating. I've, I've talked about it before. It's one that I saw when we were at Yale for the Wyndham Campbell's Prize, which this book won. And it's a study of what happened to the loyalists during the Revolutionary War, you know, the people who were loyal to the king. And I have to say, I never thought about them at all. I think in my mind, I thought about British subjects in America at this time period as being soldiers for some reason, probably because that's the story that I was taught in grade school. It's not like I read a ton of American history from this time period. What's really neat, and I'll I'll talk about this more, when I finish the book, which might be a while because I kind of put it down since I've been focused on, you know, traveling and whatnot. But there were regular people who were just living their lives. She talks about this time period as being a civil war for the people who were living at that time, which makes perfect sense. And I never thought about it that way. So more to come on that. That sounds really interesting. I remember when we went to that award. That's when we saw Min Jin Lee. Right. Yeah. She was there talking with one of the winners. She was an interviewer. Yeah. Right. So I'm reading The Catch by Allison Fairbrother. This book just came out, I think, a couple of weeks ago. I have to admit, I'm not loving it yet, but I think it's partly because you know how some books you need to really sit with them and read 50 pages. They're not good books to just pick up and put down and pick up and put down and that's kind of what my weekend coming back to town has been like. So I'm looking forward to in the next few days, really picking it up and digging deeper into it. But it's about a young woman who's in her early 20s, and her father surprisingly unexpectedly passes away. And he's someone that was just a super big, fun personality. Her parents were divorced. He's on his third wife. He's had children with each of his wives, and he sees her mostly in the summer throughout her life with him. And so he does things like has Thanksgiving in July so that they can celebrate all the holidays they've missed. The part of the story I'm in now, the funeral has taken place, and she's learning after his will is read that there are some unsolved mysteries, things she didn't know about her father, which happens a lot when we become adults. We see our parents in a different light. So, so far, that's what the book's about. I'm not very far into it, maybe 30%. 
Again, it's called The Catch by Allison Fairbrother. Nice. Well, I'm also reading Death by Dumpling by Vivian Chen. It's C-H-I-E-N. Is that how you pronounce that name? Yeah, maybe or Sheen. Sheen? Yeah. So it's a cozy mystery. This is the first in the series. It's a noodle shop mystery. The protagonist quit her job (laughs) and is having a hard time finding a new one and needed to pay the bills and finds herself working at her parents' Chinese restaurant, which she never wanted to do. And of course, they always wanted her to do, but she has to pay the bills. She has a roommate and someone dies because it's a cozy mystery. And it's the guy who is the landlord of this whole Asian shopping center. He is found murdered, they think that there was foul play because he had a shellfish allergy Mm. and they were very careful about preparing his food. Like he'd get his standard order and they had separate cookware to use for his stuff. And they found shrimp in his stomach and his EpiPen was nowhere in sight. Although when Lana, the protagonist dropped it off, delivered her food, she saw his EpiPen in his pocket. Mm. So yes, dun, 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 as John Valeri, our mystery man would say. More to come on this. I mean, I just picked it up. I was looking for something, you know, when you're traveling and you're kind of in between doctor's appointments and everything. The Liberty's Exiles was a little bit heavy content wise, and I wanted something fun and light. So this is Death by Dumpling, the first in a noodle shop mystery series by Vivian Sheen. Oh man, I want to read that next. I mean, a noodle shop mystery. Come on. That's just so right up my alley. Um, Well, and this is one that's caught my eye several times. And I thought, okay, yeah, because I I went to the local Barnes and Noble and was just browsing for something. And when I saw this, I was like, okay, yeah, it's time for this. It also has a great cover that's going to want to make you eat some noodles and dumplings. Oh yeah. All of the covers on the series are pretty cool. And this one at least is set in Cleveland, Ohio. For all you folks in Ohio who like to read something set in your area, this might be it. I'm only, what am I? I'm on page 50. I'm not sure how detailed she gets about the Cleveland area. I know she talks about the West Side. Cleveland's actually a super cool city on the water. Mm -hmm. They've done a lot of work. When I was growing up, it was the mistake by the lake, but they've done a lot of (laughs) repair to their image and there's really fun things to do there. I know I was at amusement park that's Mm -hmm. on the shore of Ohio. Cedar Point. Yeah, I've been there and I know, you know, I rode the, it was the world's tallest wooden roller coaster at the time or something like that. And I rode that and I only needed to do that once. (laughs) (laughs) So Emily, what have you just read? I have done some reading, people. I finished my Plain Song trilogy on episode 157. I talked about Plain Song. I have finished Eventide and Benediction. These are by Kent Haraf. The trilogy or series is my big book summer challenge. I have a buddy read on Goodreads. I'd love for any or all of you to pipe in on that, whether you read one book or all three or have read them in the past. Would love to hear what you think of them. I will say Plain Song, definitely my number one favorite of the three. What made me sad as the series progressed is the characters that I loved in Plain Song dwindled 
as the series went on. They made a bigger appearance in the second book and not much of an appearance at all in the third book, which didn't mean that the books weren't still good. It's just hard to say goodbye to characters you love. (laughs) Sure, Um, yeah. And Eventide, the character Victoria is now off to college. The McFerrin brothers are missing her and they have to learn how to live without her. It's one of those things where their house became vibrant and rich and alive. And then off she went to college, which she needed to do with her little daughter. And she does come back and make some appearances and even brings a boyfriend along. And there are some great fun scenes on the farm with her and her kind of city boyfriend. And one of the McFerrin brothers unexpectedly finds a little love, which is fun and goes to show that that can happen at any age. New characters are introduced, including a couple that has a lot of trouble caring for their children and involves some child abuse. So trigger warning on that. That was really hard to read. Again, Kent Harris writing is beautiful. It all still takes place in Holt, Colorado. I would say Eventide really talks a lot about the fragility of the human spirit both from the point of view of kids that are traumatized and then also aging in a small town and what your life can bring. And then the third book is Benediction, very different, still in Holt, Colorado, but the main character here is a character named Dad Lewis, which I thought was funny that his name was Dad, but everyone calls him Dad, and he's dying of cancer. So the story really revolves around him. He has an estranged son who is estranged because of sexual orientation. There's a scene in the book that was so devastating to me where dad finds his son as a young boy dressed in his sister's clothes, riding a horse and hugging one of his fellow boyfriends who's also dressed in a girl's dress. And they're just enjoying themselves the father's reaction is so traumatizing to both the father and the son. The way that it was written was just phenomenal. I thought Kent Hariff, oh, what a writer he is. And at the same time, dad has a devoted wife and a sister who's kind of towing the party line, even though she does still keep in touch with her brother, but her relationship is somewhat estranged because of the circumstance as well. There's also a preacher who's moved to town who preaches in a different way and tries to be a little new age, and his people at his church aren't having it. And then also the relationship between his wife and his son. So there's a lot of father-son relationships in this book, and it was very different than the other two. I enjoyed it. It reminded me a little bit of Marilyn Robinson, whose books I wanted to love, you know, the home series. Just because there was a little bit more religion, I mean, even the title, right, Benediction, it has a religious overtone to it. I did the series. I enjoyed it. I'm really glad I did. And Plain Song was still my number one. <laughs> Very cool. I'm so glad you enjoyed them. For some reason, for the longest time, I thought they were set in Illinois, but I just got confused because he taught at a university in Illinois. He did. And yeah. And so plain song, I think plains, I think, uh, well, not so much Illinois, that's more prairie, I guess. But yeah, so I was surprised. But I mean, Colorado has plains. Right. I mean, yeah. Obviously. Yeah, no, it was really interesting, <laughs> so. because I was just in Colorado, and Jim and I were driving along and he was like, Oh, these are the plains of plain song. 
It was yeah. very cool, you know, kind of like, oh, this is the landscape, exactly what he's talking about. And there are the herds of cattle, which are very present in the books. You really got the sense of like, wow, if you lived in one of these small towns, this is exactly what it would feel like. And I thought Kent Harriff portrayed it really well. And he actually did pass away in Salida, Colorado, which is where we were last year. I didn't know that until this year. And we were just a little bit north of Salida again this year. What did you read? I read The Historian by Elizabeth Kostova. This was one of my big books. If I only complete one big book, I'd be happy with this one. It was my second read of this. I read it when it first came out, and I believe it was 2005. And I remember kind of having mixed feelings about it, as I said before, because there was so much hype about it. And sometimes when there's so much hype about a book, you have these unrealistic expectations or you just feel kind of, I know I do, I feel a little resistance. Like, I don't want to like it because it's so popular, you know, that literary snobbery that can creep into me. But it was a vampire book and I wanted to read it right away. So this second reading was enjoyable. I enjoyed it very much, but it is a slow book. It is about three different sets of people, kind of three different time periods. So it starts with a young girl who is living with her father, mother's gone, and her dad starts acting erratically. So she starts snooping in his study and finds this book. Then they start having a conversation and he starts saying, well, maybe you're old enough. I need to start telling you things. So he's telling her these stories and he is a historian by training. And that is like in the 1970s. But in the 1950s or so, when he was a graduate student in history, he had a situation where this book appeared. And it was a really old, old looking book that was empty. The pages were clean. Other than at the very center, there was this huge block print of a dragon. And it just appeared in his study carol one day. And he's like, oh, you know, where did this come from? And I think he tries to put it in the lost and found or something, and it comes back onto his study carol. So he goes one day during a meeting with his advisor to talk about the next chapter of his dissertation. And this book comes up. His advisor takes off a copy of a very similar book with the same wood carving prints and talks about his research that he did in the 1930s about this mysterious book that also appeared in his life. They're in Oxford, England, and Rossi is the professor's name, the older advisor's name. And the research he did, you know, he went to Eastern Europe to try and track things down. I can't say too much more because I don't want to give any spoilers about how all of these characters entwine. But the big thing is it's the hunt for Dracula, who they believe is still alive. Mm. Yeah. I mean, and this is kind of spoilery, but Dracula is looking for a historian to catalog his collection, (laughs) which is just like, you got to love that, right? (laughs) I think people who enjoy this book are folks who love to travel because there's a lot of travel stuff in this book in Eastern Europe, for the most part, set in the 1970s. So they're behind the Iron Curtain, which was a very different time to try and travel East, if you were an American or a British citizen. So there's some fun stuff with that too. Like I said, it's slow. It's a bit dry. It is very straight. And I mean, straight 
and narrow because most vampire novels, even back to Bram Stoker's, I mean, and there's Carmilla before that, there's a queerness to them. There's the same sex desire or some type of queer mingling of body fluids and stuff, you know, but in this book, in the historian, it's a very straight and it's also very, I think, American because every vampire story has its own vampire lore. And traditionally, in a lot of these stories, it's not just that the vampire bites you and drinks your blood. I mean, they could drain you and kill you or they can just take some. But you have to drink the vampire's blood to become a vampire and a lot of vampire lore. In this book, in The Historian, if a vampire bites you three times, that's it. So it's like three strikes and you're out. Like how hmm. more American can you get than yeah. that, right? <laughs> um, I know it's, so it is, it is a complicated book. Are you glad that you read it again? I'm so glad that I read it again and I'm going to keep it because chances are I'm going to read it again. Wow. Because even though it's slow and a bit dry and the pacing doesn't really change much, I would still read it again mm -hmm. because I think the way she entwines things is just really well done. But it's not exactly in my top three vampire novels of all times. Plus, you know, it's a big mofo book. It's right. like almost 700 pages long. So it's not something you can pick up lightly. No, I saw it in a lot of used bookstores on my travels. And I thought of you every time I saw it. And I thought, <laughs> this thing is huge. Yeah, it is huge. <laughs> and you know what? A lot of people have really liked it. If you go on to Goodreads and you look at your friends who've read it, chances are a lot of people in your life have read this book because it had so much hype when it first came out. So I know people who don't necessarily like vampire novels have read this one hmm. because it is considered more literary than horror. So if you're looking for like a good horror, this might not satisfy in that way. But I would think most people who are at least into vampires will want to have this one under their belt. So again, that's The Historian by Elizabeth Kostova. And yeah, yes, we both have a big book under Yay. our belt and it's the end of June. <laughs> Nice. Oh, us. Well, I finished Vacation Land by Meg Mitchell Moore. I'm going to paint a picture for you. I had just arrived in Colorado and the gentleman caller and I made a rookie mistake, which was we decided we would drive from Denver to Crested Butte on day one, which put us at about 10,000 feet. <laughs> so we both got a little bit of altitude sickness and we had hatched big plans for the second day in Crested Butte you know, because we got there late and just spent the night. And instead, we ended up sitting on the porch and reading because neither of us felt like hiking higher than we already were. So I read this book. It takes place in Maine. And it was hot and sunny in Colorado. And so it was really good for me to at least feel like I was near water in my mind, <laughs> which <Nice>. this book <laughs> provided. So the main character, Louisa, has three kids. She lives in Brooklyn. She's a professor and she's on sabbatical working on finishing a book that's not going very well because she's caught up in family stuff a lot and procrastinating. She doesn't blame it all on her children, but it's easy to do so. So she takes the kids to her parents' home in Maine where they typically just spend a couple weeks, but they've chosen to spend most of the summer there this year in the hopes that she can finish her book. Her husband remains at home. He owns a podcasting media company that he's trying to get in good stead because he's hoping to sell it. 
When Louisa gets to Maine, she learns that her father, his Alzheimer's has really progressed. So she's also helping her mom handle that and trying to figure out what they can do to make their lives better. Another character comes to Maine, Christy, who's arrives by Greyhound bus. She starts working at a local restaurant. She picks up a new boyfriend unexpectedly and at the same time is fleeing her past, but also trying to understand her past because she never knew who her father was. And her mother has passed away from cancer, died keeping that a secret from her, but she thinks she might know who her father is. And he's in Maine and she's looking for him. So as happens, these characters end up coming together and knowing each other, Louisa and Christy. The stories intertwine. It's very main and very summery. And it was the perfect read for me as I was sweltering in the sun in Colorado with no water nearby. <laughs> I've read one other Meg Mitchellmore book. You're really safe with her if you're looking for a good beach read. It didn't wow me, but I enjoyed it. And it was the perfect thing at the perfect time. Again, it's called Vacation Land by Meg Mitchellmore. Nice. <laughs> Well, the other book I read, this was a surprise read for me. I wasn't planning on reading it, but you know, I've often mentioned before that I like to have an e-reader, I should say a digital book going at bedtime because it's just so convenient to read on an e-reader at night. I don't disturb anyone. It's easy to hold up as opposed to something like The Historian when it's a paperback. So sometimes I'll just download the free preview of a book and that'll do it. You know, I'm good. I just read the preview. I don't need to read on but I downloaded the preview of my autobiography of Carson McCullers by Jen Chaplin. I read the preview. I downloaded the book. I stayed up way too late reading. And then I finished the book the next day. I am in love with this book. In love. And I'm kind of late to the party because so many people have really enjoyed this book. Chaplin was a graduate student working in an archive. And one of the author's belongings that she was cataloging and documenting was Carson McCullers papers and some of her clothing because you know archives do keep other things you know objects of, of people sometimes and so she just became really fascinated with McCullers and reading her papers and letters and was shocked by how straight her story is represented in the house museum that is Carson McCullers' childhood home in Georgia. There's no mention anything that she was queer, bisexual. Uh, it, they talk about the man she married twice and then who was estranged from when he died, but they gloss over her last major relationship, which was with a woman. And then she had other female lovers. What I like so much about it was Chaplin's describing what it's like to be a lesbian researching another lesbian or woman who was queer in history and how you read things that are so similar to your own experience, yet the official record might say something completely different. So I really enjoyed it for that validation, I guess, of my own experience in a lot of ways. I didn't know much about Carson McCullers. You know, one of our past read-alongs was her book, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. That's the only thing that I read by her. I mean, maybe I read a short story or something when I was in school that I don't recall. 
But now I'm totally fascinated with her. And so when I've been on the road lately and stopping at used bookstores, I've been looking for McCullers novels and I haven't found any. Although I should say I did see a couple copies here and there, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. And that's probably because it was an Oprah pick many years ago. So there's still some of those floating around. Like I said, I read the digital copy of my autobiography of Carson McCullers. And, you know, when it came out, people said to me, Chris, you got to read this. You're going to love it. And again, you know how I I get so resistant. I'm stubborn, I guess, that way. Do you remember when we had Russell on? Because that was one of his top 10 reads of, I don't know now, 21? I don't know. 21, probably. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think it came out in 20. Yeah, Yeah. I think it was in 20. And he was like, Chris, Mm -hmm. go get yourself a copy. You have to have a (laughs) copy of this. So he has been redeemed. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Sorry, Russell, that I didn't take your advice immediately. really, really love this book. And so now I'm going to get a hard copy of it too, because I, I want to read it right away again. I just think it's a brilliant work. It's very creative in how she entwines the biography of Carson McCullers and then her own experiences as a researcher and a lesbian with disabilities. McCullers also had disabilities. So there's that connection that they had. And then also theory Mm-hmm. and archival practice. So right. I just thought the way, and it's a small book. It's I think it's just barely over 200 pages, maybe. Yeah, and it came out before you were even in library school. So now, right. I mean, in a certain way, I think you read it at the perfect time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God, I'm so excited to have read it. And I, yeah. I can't wait to get my hands on a hard copy. Right on. Yeah. And I will read whatever she writes next. I will be the first in line to buy it. That was my autobiography of Carson McCullers by Jen Chaplin. Right on. I finished Signal Fires by Danny Shapiro. This book isn't out until October 11th. I got an early copy and was really excited to get the chance to read it. Being on vacation, I was looking for something, and this proved to be perfect. It's a literary work. I mean, Danny Shapiro is known for her memoir. She's written some other novels. I think this might be her third novel. Don't quote me on that. It takes place in 1985, and the opening scene is where three teenagers are driving in a car whilst drinking. It's a brother and a sister and their neighbor. The brother is driving. He's underage, and they get in a car accident and hit a tree right on the block where they live. And the third child in the car, not the brother or sister, dies on impact. It's very traumatic. That is a trigger for me in many ways. I had two different sets of friends who were in car accidents and died when I was growing up. It was definitely the thing when I was raising my kids that I was the most afraid of, particularly where I raised my kids. There's country roads that they have to take in order to get anywhere they want to go outside of town. Anyway, it obviously has an impact on both of these kids for the remainder of their life. A lot of what the book is about is how when you don't talk about trauma, how that festers and grows and impacts your life and people handle it in different ways. Some people drink and numb in ways so that they don't have to think about it. Other people just keep trying to run and not look at it at all. That's mostly what the story is about. And it takes place on the street where they lived, which was Division Street, which is an interesting name, right? And it's about the neighbors who move in across the street and the father of these teenagers, Ben, who's a doctor, and he actually delivers the child of the neighbors across the street 
which is an interesting scene. The wife goes into labor unexpectedly and has this baby on the kitchen floor. And then that child, Waldo and Ben, end up having a relationship with each other. Waldo growing up, he's a very special child who's very interested in the night sky, which is where the title Signal Fires comes from. Her writing was beautiful. It was a very quick read. It's just over a couple hundred pages. I would say the main theme is about family tragedy and unspoken damages that's caused from that, but also how relationships with outside characters in your life have a big impact. So this older doctor who couldn't necessarily have important conversations with his own children could with this neighbor child across the street, right? I really enjoyed it. Again, it's called Signal Fires by Danny Shapiro. I will remind everybody when it comes out in October, but you certainly can pre-order it and ask your library to get it now. I have yet to read something by her and I I need to get on that because I know a lot of people enjoy her books. Yeah, I didn't I didn't even know she wrote novels. I thought she just wrote memoir and nonfiction, but here she is with a novel. Well, the other book I read is Cats in the Navy by Scott Christensen. I have my copy to show Emily here. This is such a delightful book that Naval Institute Press asked me if I'd be interested in a copy. And I said, yes, immediately, because I love cats. When Laura and I first met, we each had two cats. And so when we moved in together, I joke that we were like the lesbian version of the Brady Bunch because we were blending our four cats. Um, (laughs) And now we don't live with cats. All of our cats have gone to kitty heaven. So I get my cat fix where I can. This book is exactly what it said, Cats in the Navy. It is full of fantastic photographs, vintage photographs. Mm -hmm. I'm showing Emily some pictures here of sailors from around the world. It's not just the U.S. Navy. There are other sailors from around the world featured in here. There's adorable pictures of sailors holding cats, taking care of cats. Cats on ship had their own little hammocks sometimes to help with seasickness. There are also a couple drawings and you know some other images. But the basic format of the book is on the left-hand page is a little bit of history or a story about a cat. And then on the right-hand side is a picture of some kind. I learned so much from this book. I thought it was going to be mainly like cute stories and biographies of cats. There's actually a lot of fascinating information. Like one of the reasons cats were first on ships during the age of sail is that rats need to be caught because they spread disease and they also eat your food. And when you're on a voyage, you can't afford to lose any food that's been eaten or contaminated by rats. But one of the problems with rats was that they would get into the gunpowder and then track it all over the ship with their little paws. And then they didn't have electricity. They're using lamps and fires, open fires to cook aboard ship. So it was like a fuse that could just lead right back to the magazine, this, you know, the stockpile of gunpowder. I'm thinking like, wow, that had to be a hard learning curve. I was going to say, right? Oh my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) Keeping rats out of things was always important. And even the ancient Egyptians had rats aboard ship as did the Vikings. So the mythology of cats being bad luck aboard ship or that they can't swim. I think some of that doesn't necessarily come from the sailor's experience. 
Other interesting things like cats produce their own vitamin C, so they never get scurvy. Hmm. And I had to look that one up because I was like, okay, that's wild. Like I, we're all mammals. I just thought, right. but dogs also produce their own vitamin C, hmm. which is really fascinating. So this book has been three different sections. It's a history of cats at sea, the many roles of the ship's cat, and then claws of fame. <laughs> So, you know, some of the more famous cats who have been documented in history. This is such a great book. I read it in pieces here and there. I took it on my trip and I just recently finished it. It's one of those books you can read straight through or you can pick it up here and there because these short little tidbits are just so fascinating. They keep you turning the pages or like I said, you can just pick it up when you have a minute or two. Great book as a gift for the cat lover in your life or someone who's into nautical stuff or just a history buff in general. Again, that's Cats in the Navy by Scott Christensen. It's out now from Naval Institute Press. And Chris wrote a great blog post about it. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Thanks. Yeah, it was really fun to hear about some of those things. And I pictured these little rat footprints of gunpowder all over the ship and was like, oh, that's so creepy. Yeah, I know. Isn't that like, yeah. I read a book that I was surprised to read. I it was one of those where I was on vacation and I needed my next book and I just opened up my Kindle and said, what's on here? And came across this book called The Local by Joey Hartstone. This just came out in the beginning of June. Joey Hartstone, this is his debut novel, but he is a writer for both the big and the little screen. So he has lots of writing cred under his belt. It was a courtroom drama. I was so pleasantly surprised. I'm always someone who reads the back of the book first. So I read his acknowledgments and found out that in East Texas, in Marshall, Texas, it is the number one place for attorneys to come for patent litigation. There's a lawyer there that just started to try patent cases. They're jury trials, but he's committed to them being very quick. That grew and grew and grew. But in order for them to have trials there, these big city attorneys come and they work with a local attorney because they have better success understanding the jurors and winning their cases, basically, if they have some local representation along with them. So this story revolves around James Euchre, who's one of these local patent attorneys who's very successful He's working with a big city law firm, and they come in with a new client, Amir Zawar, whose company is being patent threatened by somebody. So that's what the litigation is about. And his company is like an Uber. But his thing is, we're going to treat the drivers well, which is something typically with Uber and Lyft. Now there's a lot of information that we now have that those drivers aren't always treated very well and don't make a lot of money and they're using their own cars and wear and tear on their cars, etc. So his thing is he's an immigrant. His parents were immigrants. He wants these drivers to do well. His first night there, he has had an argument with this judge who is the one that's in charge of all these patent cases. And the judge throws him in jail because he's being disrespectful. And the guy yells, I'm going to effing kill you. Well, that night the judge is murdered. So suddenly what was a patent case, now there's a criminal investigation in a criminal case. And James Euchre has never tried a criminal case. 
His father was a very revered criminal attorney, so he never wanted to get into that line of work. And here he is working on a criminal case. So it becomes a courtroom drama, lots of twists and turns that were unexpected. You think you know who it is, but then you don't. And maybe Amir Zawar did commit the murder, but he claims innocence. And the character of James Euchre is great. If you're a fan of like the Lincoln Lawyer or Scott Turow books, you will love this book. It is a page turner. I did not guess who it was. I thought the whole time I was like, oh, I know who it is. <laughs> it did not end up being that person. Great writing, great dialogue, fun character. I loved it. It is definitely going to be made into a television show or a movie. I'm sure <laughs> you heard it here first. I'm sure you didn't hear it here first. But anyway, (laughs) and I think I would be very surprised if it doesn't become a series with James Euchre as the main lawyer, like the Lincoln lawyer. So again, it's called The Local by Joey Hartstone. And I highly recommend. Very cool. Sounds good. Well, I didn't read any more. I Well, I didn't finish anything else. And Mm -hmm. I know you have a couple more. No, that's it for me. Really? Yeah. Oh, I thought... Okay. Oh, that was six. <laughs> oh, gosh. Wow. Really? Well, see, I could listen to you talk about books forever. Maybe I just don't want you to stop. <laughs> well, we could talk about some biblio adventures because we have both been places. Yes, ma'am, we have. Oy. Wow. Well, one of the most exciting things on my trip was I got a basalt library card. My son lives in basalt, Colorado. They have a beautiful library. This time last year, one of the Book Cougars episodes was posted from that library. My Aunt Ellen was there for my son's wedding. And one day she came excitedly into my Airbnb, waving her basalt library card and telling me, you can get a basalt library card. You can get a basalt library card. So we went over together and I did. And I'm very excited. That's awesome. (laughs) I love the pictures that you posted on social media of the two of you. And then that really cool treehouse that they have out back for the kids. Oh, it's such a beautiful library. It's located right on the Roaring Fork River. So you can sit and work at tables where you're looking at the river. And yes, what Chris is talking about is there's a path around the back where they built this beautiful treehouse. You have to climb up a significant set of stairs. But once you do, they have these little tiny Adirondack chairs, kid size Adirondack chairs where kids can read in the treehouse. We posted pictures of it on social media. So if you didn't get a chance and you're on social media, try to look for those pictures. Very sweet. The gentleman caller even makes an appearance in one of them, as does Aunt Ellen. We had a great time. Yeah. And that treehouse has a fabulous design. So do look at it. It's very cool. And I saw lots of little free libraries all across Colorado and Utah as well. So that was fun. I picked up a copy of How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America by Clint Smith. I saw that's a a TBR for you as well. Maybe we can do a buddy read in the future. It is. You know, he won the Harriet Beecher Stowe Prize this year. And so he will be at the Harriet Beecher Stowe House. I think they've already done something with him. And then there's going to be an event in the fall with him around the book. So that's how it first really came on my radar, I think. I'm, I don't really remember. But yeah, so Buddy Reed. Yeah, and I've heard several interviews with him. I'm really excited to read it. I believe it's like a series of essays 
I would really like to read it. And I, I think it's one that, you know, when you're reading it, it's nice to have someone to talk with about it. So let's yeah. try to set that up. That'd be super fun. You know, I caught an event through the Chicago Public Library where he was in conversation with people. And it is a series of essays. He travels to different places throughout the United States where slavery was prominent, or there's a story being told about slavery today. And he kind of interrogates it from what I understand. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So I got a chance to go to White River Books in Carbondale, Colorado. This is a small town mountain town. They haven't had a bookstore for 12 years, the owner told me. And she's been in business for three months. It's a really sweet store, well curated, lots of light streams through, which is common, I found in Colorado and Utah, because there is you're so close to the sun, there is a lot of light. She had a beautiful selection of cards by local artists. So I got some cards And I bought a book, which oh, it's terrible. I don't remember the title, but it was a book about skiing for Jacob because I really wanted to support her. She hasn't started to have events yet, but she said the local library does events and she doesn't really have space for them yet, but she's trying to figure that out. But if you're in Carbondale, it's not on the main drag. It's a little bit off the side street, but really worth a visit. Again, it's called White River Books. Nice. Yeah, and pictures of those on social media too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Laura and I took a road trip down to North Carolina to visit my sister-in-law slash her sister and brother-in-law. Our niece was there too at the same time, which is fun. So I did get to stop at a bookstore along the way in Lexington, Virginia, the bookery. Wow. Great used bookstore. I mean, it's that classic kind of used bookstore with books everywhere. You have to kind of skirt along through the aisles super friendly owner. When I was there, it was in the morning and locals were coming and going and chatting with her and talking about book orders coming in and the the next book for the book club order coming in. So it's definitely the hub of book activity in Lexington, I think. She has also some new books on the front tables, some brand new books, but it's mainly used and The Virginia Military Institute, VMI, is right there. I think there's another college as well. So they have a lot of course books, you could tell. (laughs) Really lovely shop. I wish I would have had more time. I could have dropped some serious cash there. So how did you and Laura work it? Did Laura give you like, you know, okay, go, you have 15 minutes. We got to get back on the road. She's like, take whatever you want. Just let me know. And I said, how about 15 minutes? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I was anxious to get on the road. We wanted to get down there. But yeah, really cool. And then there was a bookstore around the corner called the Historian's Bookshop or something like that. They were closed, unfortunately. It was a Sunday, I believe. So I might have to go back. Yeah. Because Lexington seems like a really cool town or a city, but really fun bookstore. And then we were in Asheville. My sister-in-law and brother-in-law lived just outside of Asheville. So we did go into town one day for lunch and a walk around in bookstore opportunities. So I went to Malaprops, which is one of my favorite independent bookstores in the country. When I lived in North Carolina, I'd often drive up there and spend the day browsing and having a good beverage. They have a nice cafe in there as well. And I don't know if they redid their facade because Asheville, granted, I haven't been there in like 20 years. 
And I just felt like the whole city is different. Like, I don't know if the trees just got bigger or what the deal is, but I felt like the facade was different Hmm. outside of the bookstore. But as soon as I stepped in, I was like, okay, yeah, they didn't move. This is the same location, you know? (laughs) So that was a great browse. And I, I bought some treasures there. And then I also hit downtown books and news, which is just down the hill from like the heart of downtown, I guess. And that is a used store. They had a lot of great vintage stuff and some rare books. So I also found some treats there. And that was nice because, you know, I had a lot more time to browse because everybody else is shopping whatever they wanted to be shopping. Nice. Yeah, yeah, there was a Booktopia in Asheville. So I have been there. They had an event at a used bookstore. I can't remember if it was that one. It was one that I think they'd also, at some point, that store had a fire or a flood or something, oh, wow. so they might have moved locations. But it was like a bookstore bar. Is that what this one is? Or no. no? Okay, this one, no. so that's something different. You yeah. know what? There was, um, Tracy, my sister-in-law, was telling me that there is, in the Galleria, they have this huge indoor shopping center in a, in a historic building, and they have a... I guess it's a champagne bar that yeah, sells Yeah, that's the one I'm talking that, about. Okay. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. they had an yeah. event there and um and it, it it when you walk in it definitely feels like a bar but then there's also books everywhere and like two floors I think. So Okay. Yeah. Wow. So that is yeah. different. So I don't know that I knew about that third one. I don't remember. Downtown books. Yeah. You know what? I'm pretty certain I should have been there. I don't remember it, but when I was younger, I would hit every bookstore I could in a town. But I don't remember it, but I will definitely go back there when we're in the area because they had a really nice selection and well curated. They do sell newspapers and magazines. And I found the latest two editions of Slightly Fox magazine there, which I've never seen in the wild. So I snapped those up and look forward to reading those essays throughout the summer. I'd never heard of that. Yeah. So is that something that you used to get a subscription to or? No, yeah. I, I um, ran into them online. They're on social media. Okay. Um, so you could check them out on Instagram is where I connect with them. Slightly Fox has essays about books and reading. And I, I've read one of them so far and really enjoyed it. So I figured I'm going to keep it on my lamp table yeah. uh, next to the couch and, and pick it up throughout the summer. Nice. Well, I went to Park City, Utah and came across Atticus Coffee and Tea House, which is ironic because we have an Atticus in New Haven, no relation. But boy, it's more of a tea house, I would say, with some books. So much tea, like a wall of loose leaf tea that you can order. And as a tea lover, I frequently can whine about the fact that I think coffee lovers get much more attention in the United States. One of the things I love about traveling to Ireland and England and places like that is they offer you tea, which doesn't happen as much here in the States. Woe is me. But anyway, when I walked into the store and just saw a wall of loose leaf tea, both for sale and that you could order by the cup, I thought that was so cool. And they had a really nice vibe inside with a mural on the wall and a couch and an umbrella and kids were hanging out and drinking tea and reading books. And then they have books and cards and journals and socks and fun stuff for sale. But the books almost feel like an afterthought to the cafe, not in a bad way, just in a way. And then around the corner is a bookstore called Dolly's Bookstore, a new bookstore and beautiful, just tons of windows, light streaming in, 
lots of cards, a great selection of new books. They had a beautiful kids section in the back with lots of puzzles and spaces for the kids to read and things like that. So I really enjoyed Park City. We had been hiking that day at a very high altitude. So I was thrilled to be back on street level, which is still high, but doing a little bit of book shopping. It was really fun. I'd never been there before. So with that wall of tea, was that the most loose leaf tea you've ever seen in the United States? I would say that's not in a tea shop, just like a specific tea shop. You know, like you can go into Chinatown in New York and go into a tea shop and see unbelievable amount of tea. And, you know, there are different tea shops I've been to. Ironically, where Jacob went to school in Kentucky is one of the best tea shops I've ever been to in this country, Elmwood Tea which you can order from. I still order from them. And so you go in there and it's all about the tea, but it's a tea shop. But I've never been to a bookstore that's main focus was tea as opposed to coffee. Yeah. I didn't even notice if they sell coffee there. I'm sure they do. Well, no, it is called a coffee and tea house. So I just didn't notice the coffee. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Cool. Well, I had an online biblio adventure it was the Willa Cather, the annual spring conference that they have. And I just wanted to mention two of the events. Now, this event was a talk by James English, which was literary award as judgment device. He's the author of The Economy of Prestige, which I've mentioned before, which is all about the awards in the United States. And I thought this is really kind of fascinating talking about awards in America. And he kind of talked about the creation of them. And I thought listeners might be interested in learning a little bit about this, that awards are created because they're trying to accomplish something. Initially in the United States, it was like moguls and the super wealthy were trying to create literary awards to cleanse their reputation. You know, like Nobel was an arms merchant and Pulitzer was known for yellow journalism and wanted to clean up his reputation. So there's that as a category. There's private foundations. There are government awards. Around the world, governments have different book awards. We have the National Book Award here. Publishing industry professionals. And he included the Oscar Awards in that when he was talking about that, as well as the National Book Awards. Because the National Book Awards is supported by the publishing industry in the United States. Maybe when I said National Book Awards earlier, I was thinking about the big annual event in D.C., probably. And then there are writers associations who put out awards, like the Mystery Writers of America, the Romance Writers of America, you know, genres that have been pushed to the side by literary snobbery or not considered for those more literary awards. They've started their own. And then readers groups start their own organizations. That made me think too about a lot of the bookish online awards that you see, like the YouTube book prize that was started just a couple years ago. And then he also included haters, people who mock prizes like the Razzies. He said, those are usually formed by the disgruntled outsiders or people who want to make fun of how bad certain things are. So that was really interesting. And and then a great point that he made was that prizes are not always good for literature. Mm. They might sell more books, but he said they tend to celebrate what's already established. So the same types of books win, like hashtag so white. Right. He said that traditionally they're very male with women now writing 50% of the books or more. They are still 
rare to win. Like for the Nobel, there's been 119 men who've received a literary award and only 17 women. But that when women do win the award, the protagonist is usually a male. Oh, wow. Which totally made me think of Willa Cather's one of ours. The protagonist is a man named Claude Wheeler. I was like, wow, really fascinating. And now his talk is available on willacather.org if you'd like to watch that. Okay, we'll put that link in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. And then the other event, which I I did not see a link for this one, but it was Maureen Corrigan, who is on Fresh Air and writes reviews for a lot of different places. And I just thought listeners might like to know this because I know a a lot of folks like her. She was just saying that her mission is to tell readers whether or not a book is worth your time. Oh, that's pretty clear. Yeah. Yeah, very clear. And she teaches a course on literary value and evaluation. She mentioned that her students, they don't want to judge things. She's like, okay, but you know, when there's a novel coming out, literally like every five minutes, how do you, if you want to be a critic or a teacher, how do you decide what you're going to teach or recommend or read yourself, really? So really good points. She gives a book 50 pages. I know a lot of us do something similar to that. But she said she decides what to read by if something sounds fresh to her, if it hasn't been done to death, or if there's a really unique voice on the page. Mm. I wonder how she just picks it up to begin with. I mean, since the point she's making that there are so many books published, you know, how do things get on her radar? And she did judge the Pulitzer one year. Mm -hmm. And I mean, she said for that, she's like every couple of weeks, a coffin sized box of books would arrive at her house. Yeah, that was intense. And she said at the beginning of the pandemic, it was really odd because usually her front stoop is covered with packages every day. And then for for the longest time, there are no packages. And she's like, that to me was when I knew the pandemic was really real and like the world was changing. And then she did mention that anybody can be nominated for a Pulitzer, even if you're self-published, you can nominate Hmm. your book. So she said, when you see people say, my book was nominated for a Pulitzer, it really doesn't have the same weight as saying like, yeah, that you were a finalist for the National Book Award or something like that, or on the short list of an award. So the really fascinating conversation, I thought it was really good to see her speak. I'd never seen her speak before. I love her voice. Yeah. And she can be snarky. Like she doesn't, she doesn't sugarcoat things. And I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, she decides what she wants to talk about on her fresh air segment or what she wants to write a review about. But I think there are times I've heard her talk about a book that is immensely popular or highly anticipated. And on some of those, (laughs) I've heard her say, don't waste your time. Yeah. And I was just like, damn. Yeah. So I was just listening to a woman who started a newsletter about restaurants in New York and she's made it very clear. Like she's not a critic that there are restaurant critics. So if she eats somewhere and she doesn't like it, she's just not going to talk about it. I feel that way sometimes. I know so many authors and I know how much work it takes for them to put a book out that I feel like, ooh, do do you really want to be snarky and mean about their writing or maybe just don't talk about it? But she's a critic. And so that is her job. It's a little different. Yeah. And so to, you know, especially to address some of those big books that are getting a lot of push. I mean, it's hard. You know, I I'm an ambivalent reviewer. I mean, I tend to only review books that I've read fully. Mm -hmm. And usually it's rare that I'll read a book that I don't like all the way. 
but I have done what they call, you know, like rage reading, like where it's just like, oh, you bastard, like, you know, how dare you? (laughs) And that's usually more with like some opinionated nonfiction book that is probably designed to have readers react in that way, unless you are completely of that ilk or something. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I went to Pioneer Book in Provo, Utah. And this was the beginning of the mad dash that the gentleman caller's son, Liam, took me on through Utah, used bookstores specifically. And when I went on this vacation, I had just listened to an interview with Kent Harriff, who has passed away, but there is an interview with him with Vic McCunis on the Book Nook. Vic is from Yellow Springs, Ohio. I used to listen to the Book Nook all the time when I lived there. And I still do listen to it now in podcast form, not live on the radio. But um, I had listened to the interview with Kent Harriff. I read, you know, the Plain Song series. And one of the authors that Kent Harriff talked about loving is James Welch. And he's from the West. And so I thought, well, I'm heading to the West. Hopefully I can find some James Welch books. The book I set out to find was called Fool's Crow. And I walked into Pioneer Book, which is a beautiful used bookstore. They boast that they have over 47,000 tiles in the store. It's two floors, incredibly well organized and well lit. They have a very cute counter that you check out on that's made of books. And I immediately went upstairs. We didn't have much time. The meter on our parking was running out. We had like, I think they did that on purpose, by the way. So I could only have 10 minutes in the bookstore. Um, (laughs) But I immediately went to the W's and came across two James Welch books. I was so excited. So I picked up Fool's Crow and The Heart Song of Charging Elk. And I bought them and walked out the door and hope to go back to Provo, Utah. If I lived near there, that would be a bookstore that I would frequent often. Nice. Really good store. I and love their the facade of their books or yes. to their entryway is fabulous. It's like this big, like a half dome. Well, not exactly a dome. It's more of like a, what would you call it? A crescent shaped mm-hmm. with the book design around. Oh, so beautiful. It was beautiful, beautiful. And then the next bookstore, we got in the car and drove to Salt Lake City And we went to Marissa's bookstore, which is in an old auto mechanic spot, like so cool. So it has all the doors that can open, which the bookseller told me once a year, they do a big sale where they actually open them and put books out in the parking lot, which I might look up the date of that sale. (laughs) That's awesome. Oh my gosh. This store went on forever. They had really cool um, displays, you know, the way they displayed the books. And they had things curated down to subjects that I have never seen before. Like epilepsy was a subject area in the health and wellness. I mean, it was down mm-hmm. to that specificity. Um, Liam laughed because there was a section on aging. And then right next to it, there was a section on anti-aging. We thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> There is a section on presidents. I mean, really amazingly curated bookstore that went on forever. Lots of places to sit, which I appreciated. Highly recommend. I told Liam, I mean, he lives in Salt Lake City. I was like, I would check this store out every other week because they also had library rolling carts where they had just arrived 
books. I feel like I would just swing in every once in a while, like, you know, weekly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <The> just arrived <laughs> carts. So that was really cool. Our next stop was Central Book Exchange, which was another little tiny used bookstore in the Sugar House neighborhood, which is kind of a cool hipster neighborhood. We went to a fantastic coffee shop and then stopped into this bookstore. And I was really excited to find a copy of Julie Atsuka's The Buddha in the Attic. Oh, nice. She's the author of The Swimmers, that book that I really loved this year that I know is going to be in my top 10. And several listeners told me about this book of hers that won awards, I think, when it came out. Yeah, that was hugely popular. I haven't read that, but it's yeah. a title that sounds really intriguing. Yeah. And then we did stop at a new bookstore. Liam mixed it up a little. We went to a bookstore called King's English Bookshop. Really cool. Another one that had different rooms and different levels. And we haven't posted the pictures of this. I've been posting a little bit at a time pictures of these bookstores. But I'll include this when we do the post of this one. They had a book recommendation machine that was like, you know, one of those where you put a quarter in and spin the little thing. It yeah. was really cool. And then when you get your recommendation, it offers you a 10% off with it, Aww. which I thought was a really cool idea. That's great. Yeah. And then when we walked outside, there was a side part to the bookstore and there were some carts outside with those blind date books, you know, the ones that are wrapped. Mm -hmm. But what the way they did it was it was donation only. So you decide how much you want to pay. And then the money was going to a 501c that they started where they're raising funds to start a bookmobile that they're going to take around the city oh. to neighborhoods with kids that don't have great access to books. Fantastic. I thought that was super cool. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Nice. And then as if we weren't exhausted enough, this all happened in one day, everybody. <laughs> we went to Ken Sanders Bookstore. Uh, actually, it's, the official name is Ken Sanders Rare Books. So Chris, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he is an American antiquarian bookseller who is also well known for pursuing John Charles Gilkey, who was famous for stealing books. And a book was written about him called The Man Who Loved Books Too Much. Oh, yeah, I've heard about that book. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Sanders didn't write that book, but he was one of the people that the author really referred to to get information about him. And the bookstore was insanely huge, super tall shelves, pretty well organized. And they unfortunately are being forced to move. They've been in this location forever, but you can see the development happening all around them. But they have yeah. found a new location and will be moving. I stood in the middle of that bookstore and thought, oh, I can't even imagine the work of moving them, but thankfully that's uh, not my job. Yes. Um, but another really cool bookstore. And um, after that, we were tired, but I had bet. a great day and lots yeah. of dashing and very thankful to Liam for setting up these stops and taking us around. And I look forward to going back because he claims there's a lot more bookstores that I didn't see. Oh, that's fantastic. So now does Liam have a favorite bookstore in town? Yes. Or... Is he still kind of... Marissa's is his favorite. Okay. Yeah. And that's the first one we hit when we got to town. And I can totally see why he loves that store. Yeah. 
it's just the way it's laid out is so cool. And again, the way it's curated, you can really just hone in on what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we had a great time. Great. I'm so glad that you guys had some quality time out there together. It was really fun. We came back with a lot of books. Our suitcases were all 50 pounds. We had three suitcases. They were all 50 pounds. And I carried a lot of books in my carry-on. That's awesome. It was really funny. (laughs) So for upcoming jaunts, I have one on the calendar. I have Gabrielle Zevin on July 13th. She's going to be at RJ's with her new book, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, which is getting great reviews. People might recognize her name. She wrote The Storied Life of A.J. Fickrey, which I loved. So I'm hoping maybe to get this read before the event. Maybe not. We'll see. Very cool. (laughs) What about you? Well, I am in visiting my mom in the Chicagoland area here. And I I hit the Barnes & Noble. You know, I mentioned I bought Death by Dumpling there. I also did pick up a copy of uh, Carson McCullers' novel, The Member of the Wedding. Because I thought I want to read something by her, and I I wanted to get them used at a bookstore, hopefully like a vintage copy or something. But I thought I can't wait anymore. So I've only been to Barnes and Noble so far. I'm in town. I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, but my mom had an injury and surgery, so I'm in town unplanned and helping her out for a few weeks and uh, tag teaming that with my sister. So I'm not sure how many bookstores I'll get to. But I will definitely go to the Frugal Muse, which is one of my favorite used bookstores in the western suburbs. Good. Maybe you can find a used Carson McCullers. You'll you'll keep your it's fun to have something to be hunting for. I really enjoyed that on mine. Like the James Welch, you know, hunt was fun for me. Yeah. I, I think it's so much fun to do that because otherwise you just get overwhelmed. Yeah. Or then, you know, sometimes I have found if I have, you know. 20 bucks in my pocket and books are $2. I spend all my money on books that maybe I don't need to to get right now, but then they just, you know, go into the donation bin at our own public library. If that happens for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I love having a mission. Yes. Yeah. So what are your upcoming reads? Well, I have a huge stack from my vacation, but um, I think the first one for me is going to probably be Fool's Crow by James Welch. And then also we got (laughs) surprise mail from Aunt Ellen. She sent, as always, Julia, the letters of Julia Child and Avis Devoto, edited by Joan Reardon. And I had been looking for this book. I found a digital copy. It's written, you know, in letters and I was not enjoying it digitally. So I'm thrilled to have a copy of this. I'm going to start that as well. Very cool. Well, I'll be jumping into my other big book, Summer Read, that I definitely will read. And that is The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson. That's the book that I chose to put up as the buddy read on our Goodreads page. So if anybody is interested, we'll be starting reading that July 1st. I'm kind of stretching it out because I really want to enjoy it. I think I made a schedule that is four week reading schedule for that. So yeah, so we'll put the link to that in the show notes and jump in and read along. I think that's a good one. Another one like we talked about with the Clint Smith, that'll be good to have people to be talking about it and discussing with as you go. Absolutely. Yeah. And then reminder for books that are out now, these are books that we talked about on prior episodes. 
but they are available now. Hurricane Girl by Marcy Dermansky. I loved this book. She's also on book tour, so check out her website. Blood Orange Night, My Journey to the Edge of Madness by Melissa Bond. That's a memoir. And The Lies I Tell by Julie Clark. That one is out now as well. That was a page turner. Look those up. All right, everyone. We hope that you're out there enjoying warmer weather if you live in such a climate. If you're enjoying winter, yay for you. That's our favorite season, and we wish we were there. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. (laughs) All right, everybody. Happy reading. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back again in two weeks with another episode. Until then, come chat with us on social media. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, we would love to have you join our community. All of the books that we talked about in this episode are listed in the show notes, which you can find at bookcougars.com. Each book will link to our bookshop.org page where your purchase will help support not only the Book Cougars, but also independent bookstores everywhere. And if you're an audiobook listener, we do have a special offer from Libro.fm. You can find all of this information on our website. Again, that's bookcougars.com. Thanks, everybody. This episode is edited by Pat Keogh Sound Design.